as you as you just said, it's March nineteenth, uh, Thursday, when we're talking here. So the Everett plant is still building airplanes right now. Yeah. The Tesla Q podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for and should not be used as financial, investment, or trading advice. Research associated with fiscal decisions should be conducted elsewhere. The host of the show possesses no license or credentials to warrant accepting advice based on what is heard on the Tesla Q podcast. Additionally, even though the host and guests may hold positions in companies discussed on the show, they don't have insights into the next time step of the simulation. Therefore, do not make any financial decisions based on the contents of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 60 of the Tesla Q podcast. Actually episode 62 after this conversation lasting a lot longer than expected and recording another episode in the interim period. This is my second interview with Elmer Fudd from Twitter. If you are not familiar with Elmer Fudd, then you're probably not part of Tesla Q Twitter. He uh, loves memes. He loves to pretend to be a bull at times. Sometimes he's really a bull, I guess. Uh, he makes some, some meme trades on frequent occasion, and I'm glad to talk to him again. If you want to be a contributor to the podcast, go to patreon.com slash podcast, although that may, may go away in the not-too-distant future. Because I really like the idea of not feeling obligated to put out content and just just talking. So with that, we'll go ahead and start talking. So thanks for joining me tonight, Elmer. My pleasure. How are you? I'm pretty good. So are we going to talk about markets in turmoil or, or, or what? We can, talk about, we can talk about whatever you want to. All right. I think we should talk about a few different things. It's not like there's much going on in the world right now. I mean, we've got a, a virus, we've got a big market crash, we've got Tesla having risen to insane heights and subsequently fallen back to its trading range or near its trading range, although today caused some question, I guess, with its uh, its late day rise. Well, it rose throughout the day, I guess. But So what what, what should we start with, Elmer? Uh, we can start with Tesla since I guess that's the main theme of the podcast. And I think that last time we spoke was right after Q3 when they had their first little meteoric rise and when I had my first little meme trade of, you know, getting some $100 out of the money calls and you know, they went from 250 to 300 and then 300 to 500 or something like that. And certainly it's been even wilder since then. So I guess I can allow you to ask any targeted questions, but you know, I've been mostly taking a break from that world, being an observer you know, enjoying the ridiculousness of it all, but thankfully devoting my time and capital elsewhere. But it's been an interesting ride and it's a fun ride. And, you know, I'm still very Tesla Q in spirit. And I think we're getting to a point where they should finally collapse along with the rest of the general market and along with you know, every other company that's facing difficulties in a capital intensive industry and in a recessionary, you know, depressionary type of global economy. So I'm, I'm very excited to get back on the horse and be with you guys for the forthcoming downfall that seems relatively likely. So Bull Elmer is dead? Well, you know, Bull Elmer bought, bought some meme 420 calls before yesterday's close and was able to cash them out and, you know, get a little bit of beer money from Papa Elon once again today. So, uh, so, you know, it's, it's obviously a business that is no better than it's ever been and is probably worse than it's ever been, you know, other than at certain times where it seemed like it was literally going bankrupt and Elon was able to pull something out of nowhere to be able to sustain things. But you know, Hail, Mar Hail Marys are going to get harder and harder to do 
in this type of economic environment, which I very much welcome for the original worst company in the world. <laughs> Before Boeing took the mantle. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you still on occasion will become Bull Elmer. I actually became Bull TQP a little bit by buying a 450 weekly call position just yesterday. And fortunately, I closed it out for a profit today before the announcement about the factory shutdown that's coming. Yeah, you know, it's it's really incredible. And, you know, I think the first time we did this, I tried to not cross streams too much on Boeing and Tesla because they're the same in a lot of ways, but they're different in a lot of ways. And I never, you know, back then wanted to equate them to each other. And even now, they don't necessarily need to be equated to each other. But both of them right now are being very much bad actors in terms of continuing manufacturing operations that are extremely unnecessary and extremely dangerous to their employees. You know, Boeing is still, as of today at least, running their Everett factory where they make wide body planes, which at this point is commercially the 787. And I think they make some uh, tankers for the government there and, you know, some military versions, 767s and things like that. But you know, Boeing has had, I believe the latest tally was 15 cases and counting of confirmed coronavirus in their Everett facility. I don't know if that's the plant floor or if it's the entire facility, people working, working in offices too. And there was a great article in the Seattle Times yesterday, and they've been fantastic about doing real investigative journalism throughout this crisis, you know, starting with the max, but continuing with economic difficulties, where you know, their article was citing that there were people, you know, not dropping dead on the factory floor, like we seen, kind of see the Twitter clips out of China, where people just all of a sudden start convulsing. But you know, people who become incapacitated on the factory floor and have to get removed and their buddy, their buddy next to them has to keep working. And they're, you know, very uncomfortable being there, but they haven't shut down that line yet. So, you know, I, I haven't heard, and I don't think we've heard stories like that leaking out of Fremont, but it's only a matter of time. But either way, you know, both of those companies are very, you know, unethical, psychopathic, whatever word you want to use in terms of keeping plants going when, there is certainly not immediate term demand for their products. You know, there is no airline in the world that's going to be taking delivery of a plane anytime soon. And most airlines in their recent 8Ks and press releases have clarified that very specifically that they are definitely not taking deliveries anytime soon. You know, I think United is a specific example where even a week ago when this was kind of just starting, they you know, clarified that they're not taking deliveries of any new planes in addition to you know, grounding their entire wide body fleet pretty much and lots of the narrow body fleet. So, you know, the same way that Tesla's end of quarter rush wouldn't have happened, even if they're able to make the cars in terms of you know, nobody's going out to buy a car right now. I'm sure they'd sell, you know, a few out, a few thousand extra cars to the true believers in California, but you know, it's just insanity to keep running the plant to try to keep running the plant at full steam right now, because you're just going to be making cars to put in inventory because nobody's going to pick them up you now on, it's March, it's March 19th. You know, we've got 11 days in the month left. Nobody's going to be picking them up over the next 11 days. California just went on lockdown today. People are doing essential things only. So it's just, it's just insanity, but it seems like finally in the past 24, 48 hours, California has sort of gotten Tesla under control and they're not going to let them keep skirting by anymore. And you know, that plant workers are probably under age 40. So any of them dying might not happen, but you know, some of them probably live with parents or grandparents and there will probably be literally lives saved or cost by the fact that the plant has been open as long as it has been. So it's a good thing that that farce is finally coming to an end. So as you, as you just said, it's March 19th, uh, Thursday when we're talking here, 
So the Everett plant is still building airplanes right now? Yep. Yeah. Have, so they, in, have, in fact, have they shut down any of their facilities, to your knowledge? Yeah, so, so Renton is where they make 737s, and they finally shut that down in January after making the, the MAX was grounded around the Ides of March last year. So it's been almost a year now, and Boeing had still been producing, I think, originally at the 50 a month rate because you know dennis promised that they'd get the airplane back in the air as quickly as possible he was talking about undergrounding in april or may or june <laughs> clearly that didn't happen they eventually reduced the rate slightly to 40 or 42 or something like that um but you know they they produced something like another three or four hundred planes after it, it had been grounded in addition to the four or so hundred planes that were in people's fleets that were grounded so you know they, they were producing substantial amounts throughout that with no clarity as to when it would be ungrounded. And, you know, my, you know, I think I got into the Boeing trade pretty much after the crash and probably, you know, more with more clarity in the summer and in the fall. Um, but it was just evident that, you know, it's not going to come back immediately, but, and it was just baffling that they still were producing at the level they were. And to some extent, you know, I'm not a supply chain uh, expert or professional. So I get that, turning supply chains off is hard. And, you know, Boeing was a company that had a lot of working capital and had a lot of access to other capital. So you try to keep things going as long as possible if you think it's going to be okay. But, you know, right now they're in a position where nobody worldwide wants a new plane and they have 400 planes that they've made that have not been taken delivery of by an end client. And, you know, I I don't want to say never, but there's no foreseeable near-term event that's going to make you know Ryanair take delivery of the 30 that they've made and American take delivery of the 20 they've made and you know those are extrapolated or you know guesstimates off the top of my head but it's just you know nobody could have predicted the virus obviously but uh they were already foolish in terms of how long they kept it going in my opinion and now it's just you know unbelievable that they're in a position where they have you know tens of billions of dollars of inventory that nobody's going to want to buy anytime soon. But the fact that they're still operating the plant as of today in Everett, you said? Yeah, yeah. When, like, Washington State was the very first epicenter place of this coronavirus in the U.S., that that's a bit bit psychopathic, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it, yeah, I, I deviated from that original question or point because I got off on that side tangent. But yeah, you know, so I was going to say that you know, to Boeing's credit for wanting to keep people employed, wanting to keep skills intact, et cetera, uh, they didn't lay off anybody whenever they shut down the Renton plant. They sent those people to other locations. So, you know, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but, you know, maybe 5,000 people are building airplanes in Renton. And they distributed those people across the country, mostly to Everett, you know, some to other locations. They've got, I think, a plant in St. Louis and you know, elsewhere. Um, but not only did they not shut down the plant, but they had extra workers working there who, from what I understand, were more or less twiddling their thumbs because, you know, Everett had a certain amount of employees that were actually needed to build the 787s. And, you know, they just had extra people hanging out there and perhaps polishing tools and, you know, looking for operational improvements or whatever the case may be. But yeah, you know, they've been, you know, for the past two or so months, they've been even more staffed up there running the factory. And, you know, at least for the past month, it's been evident that nobody's taking del- delivery of planes anytime soon. So, you know, once again, I'm sure shutting down a, 
supply chain is a hard decision and they, you know, they've got suppliers to look out for, they've got their own employees to look out for, but they've had all these cases. And I think the first confirmed case in effort was multiple weeks ago now. And like I said, they're up to 15 or something like that and growing. And I think that they've tried to, you know, sanitize workstations when the sick people drop out, but it's just crazy that, you know, Seattle has done a good job in this could perhaps be a segue into the general uh, coronavirus discussion. It doesn't have to be, but you know, Seattle did a good job about kind of not fully locking down, but you know, their workforce for the most part is very tech heavy. They've got Amazon, they've got Microsoft, they've got plenty of branches of Facebook and Google. And you know, I've got contacts there and they've all been working at home for the past two weeks, probably longer than New York has been and probably definitely longer than, you know, a lot of other, cities in the Midwest, Midwest or South or elsewhere I've been. So a lot of the, you know, white collar programmer tech employees have been working home for quite a long time because once the epidemic started and there were the cases in the nursing homes, people realized, okay, this is going to be a cluster. And, you know, Boeing has just kept going full bore and it's going to create a massive mess because, you know, we know that this thing is relatively contagious. It's proven that it's pretty contagious and, you know, the cases are starting to show up. But if there's 15 people sick right now, that means that, you know, 45 are actually sick and that means that those 45 are actually going to make 100 people sick and there's 100 who make 250 people sick so yeah it's, it's just crazy that they kept it going this long but I, there's supposedly rumors that they'll be done tomorrow which would be a good thing for you know the employees and the families but it's been very irresponsible that they kept it going this long but i think that with the decline in their stock price they've been trying to avoid any incremental bad news release possible but it's you know, just sad that they would put their employees and their employees' families in the community at jeopardy because they don't want to announce the fact that they're shutting down a plant. Mm -hmm. And Boeing, over the last couple of days, I guess, primarily, has become the poster child of the anti-share buyback movement. So over the last however many years, I don't know how many years, but Boeing has been buying back considerable amounts of their shares uh, they've been paying dividends as well. They declared a dividend for fourth quarter 2019 late last year, which I think they paid a month or so ago. So they, it, it from my observations of financial Twitter, FinTwit, it looks like Boeing is sort of being the the poster child of bad actors in terms of, of share price or stock buybacks. Primarily because they bought back so many shares above $300 per share. And as of this week, they're floating right around $100 per share, which is quite the destruction of capital. Yeah. You know, and if I was typing on Twitter, I would add an expletive in this phrase. But I will say on this family friendly show that, you know, you love to see it in terms of, um, you know, there's. I say that a little bit flippantly because, you know, there's pension funds, there's widows and orphans, there's people who, you know, buy America's greatest company because they feel like it can never fail. But it really is in a lot of ways as, you know, my sort of skeptical to anti-capitalist leaning worldview, gratifying to see the fact that a company who engaged in such things, you know, gets their comeuppance eventually. But you're, you're exactly right in terms of, I don't know exactly when the buyback started ramped up. I'm sure they've been buying back shares for forever, but you know, four or five years ago, they were a hundred dollar stock Four or five years ago. They started accelerated buybacks. I think that between buybacks and dividends, 
you know, they spent more than $100 of their net income or more than 100% of their net income or free cash flow between buybacks and dividends. You know, they bought back $40 billion of stock and their market cap today is something like 55 or 60, $60 billion. So, you know, they, as you would expect in the late stage capitalist you know, worldview, they did a fantastic job from you know 2014 to 2019 buying back shares and getting the stock price up from 100 to you know 350. I think the actual peak was 440, which was kind of a blow off top. So when I was referencing Boeing stock price, I think that it actually you know, got up to 370, 380 a couple times in range bound trading, but they basically quadrupled the stock price. Part of it was that they actually were expecting to make a lot of money off the max and, you know, based on the early deliveries before the crashes, you know, did start making some money off the max, but it really was the tale of financial engineering where, you know, they're just pouring money into buying back stock and it worked for a long time, but it left them penniless at the end. And, you know, they, they took out, I, I think since this crisis started, since the max crashes, I'm guessing that they've taken out almost $40 billion of new debt to sustain operations. And I think they took out you know, a $5 billion loan last spring, summer. I think they took out a $7 billion loan last fall. And most recently they got an $18 billion line of credit that was you know, originally supposed to be something like seven or eight and got expanded to 18, which I think to some extent was to show, to try to be a show of confidence in that, you know, this consortium of banks was willing to lend them all this money. And I think that pretty much closed pretty much right at the top in, you know, February before things all fell down. And when they took that out, I think they immediately drew $5 billion on it. And everyone was like, okay, yeah, if they're not making planes right now. They need to fund working capital. And within the past week or so, they maxed it out and took out the entire $18 billion. And people were kind of okay with that because they said other companies were doing that too. Hilton maxed out their credit lines, you know, just rather get your cash actually in your bank account rather than just have it be, you know, more theoretically available to you. But they, you know, between the buybacks that they wasted and the money taken out, you know, the, Boeing as a company has negative shareholder equity right now, which is insane to think about. And, you know, that, that worked when, the business was working and making you know $20 billion a year net income, but it leaves nothing for a rainy day. And the rainy day of the coronavirus was totally unexpected, but the rainy day of the 737 MAX was also unexpected, but was at least of their own doing. So, um, so yeah, it, it really is just the poster child of the company getting over leveraged, you know, being very aggressive and trying to manage the stock price. And they're going to end up destroying the company. And I'm sure there's going to be some type of bailout as of right now. Unfortunately, because I left a lot of money on the table, you know, I have no real position right now because I, I honestly didn't see things sinking this deeply, this fast. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of starting to try to do the math to figure out, you know, is it worth it to try to get a little bit more meat off the bone here, what the case is going to be. But, um, but, you know, they're, they're, not going to stay in business if it isn't for some type of intervention. And I have no idea if that intervention, you know, keeps the current equity structure or, you know, destroys it completely, or there's some type of middle ground there, but, uh, but, you know, the business is done and it's, you know, the apples of the world keep a lot of cash on the balance sheet because they make so much of it. And, you know, there aren't that many other companies that really have that fortress balance sheet, but Boeing was, 
living too richly for too long and it really came back to destroy them. So, you know, I, I feel bad for the people whose pension funds are lower. I feel bad for the long-term employees who, you know, had their 401ks probably 50% of Boeing stock because that's what the company recommended or they never sold. But, um, but it's, you know, it's reckoning day for them and for a lot of other companies that got overstretched and it's going to be an interesting time to see how things shake up. Do you feel bad for Donald Trump for the the hit that the Dow has taken, which has been substantially the result of Boeing in particular because of the way that the Dow structured with the the share price weighting of that index, as opposed to what, in my opinion, would be a far more logical market cap weighting or enterprise value weighting? Um, enterprise value would be even better than market cap, in my opinion. I'm I'm a big, big, big enterprise value above market cap person but yeah do you feel bad for for donnie for the the hit that the dow's taken well i imagine that you're being facetious with that question because i obviously do not um (laughs) sorry just just dropped my phone so you gotta edit that noise out of there nope Uh, (laughs) no i mean i i think it's also just you know i'm not the biggest donald trump hater in the world i don't like him but you know to some extent, he's honest in that you understand what his motivations are. So, you know, and I don't, I don't know that we've had a president where that isn't the case in terms of, you know, George Bush was a good old boy. You know, Barack Obama was a, you know, half progressive, half, you know, staying by the book and being a normal politician. You know, Donald Trump, you get there and you know that he's just kind of you know, doing things for himself, doing things for vanity, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's very refreshing, not the right, right work. It's very gratifying to see that his benchmark of his presidency has crumbled. And I, I, I imagine it's going to further crumble. Um, you know, I, that, but that, but so, you know, as, as we're talking about more perhaps general economy, I have no real outlook on the stock market right now because i think that he his administration and by extension the fed is going to do everything they can to see if stocks at this point so you know i'm i'm sort of very neutral right now in terms of i don't think that you know in, in a absolute beautiful capitalist libertarian free market you know stock market will be down 90 percent tomorrow because the economy is totally destroyed but there's going to be a lot of mitigation efforts to stop that from happening but i'm happy that uh, you know, the artificial pumps, especially of the past, really like three or four months, you know, I think if you look at charts of just the big indexes and perhaps the big tech companies, you know, we, we went up a lot since the elections. Some of that was perhaps deserved, you know, the economy was actually good. And I think starting in the fall with sort of the not QE4. Yeah. September, um, I think know, is when that started. Yeah, you know, Apple went from whatever, 220 to 300 or something like that and off of nothing you know it's just all multiple expansion mm-hmm. so and I'm, I'm very happy to see that evaporate from the markets you know i think that definitely on twitter perhaps on here last time i don't remember you know i've lamented that i want our generation to get a real generational buying opportunity and we're not there yet and i think i've tweeted about this but i'll bring it up here because i really enjoyed the dichotomy uh so i've been working on it for the past week as have probably many white collar professionals in this country. So I've been watching the daytime CNBC, which I never do at work. And yesterday, Bill Ackman was on and 
you know, a lot of people thought that he was fear mongering in terms of, you know, saying the sky is falling, saying that if we don't shut down our economy for the next 30 days, that it's just going to be, you know, this two-year recession. I generally agreed with him. And, you know, that, that point is up for debate, certainly, and that's fine. But I think that right after him, they had on somebody who, you know, was very much a boomer. They had his little p- picture up there. He looked like he was 55 or 60 or 65. And he said something along the lines of, that in his career, he's had four genera- generational buying opportunities. You know, I'm sure it was like 1997, or sorry, 1987 when there was you know, Black Monday, probably 2000, 2008, there's probably one more in there. And he claimed it's the fifth generational buying opportunity. And that is just how I know that either there is not enough fear in the market or that you know the Fed's gonna bail us all out in terms of we are just at the December 2018 low. You know, we've given up a year and three months of stock market gains. And a lot of the, those massive market cap companies, Apple, aren't even at that low yet. So, you know, to call this a generational buying opportunity when stocks are down cumulatively 30% at a price that they were at, eight, you know, 15 months ago, is just insane. So that is, to me, proof that either the fiction will continue or that things will get a lot worse. And that's why I'm kind of mostly on the sidelines right now. Uh, a lot of those Boeing gains are just sitting in cash to kind of see where things go from here. Um, but, you know, as people just got used to the buying the dip market of the past 10 years, but especially the past two years, and that'll, that'll either continue. And, you know, I'm not enough of an economics expert to pontificate on MMT and all of those types of things, but it's either going to just fictionalize us to new stock market highs, despite the fact that the real economy is dead, or, you know, we're going to go down a lot from here, which we should, which would actually provide a, our generation with that generational buying opportunity that I've been looking very forward to. Or another another option is that we'll have a little bit of a, a rally up to the downtrend line, which I've tweeted several times recently and then fall from there and where we fall who knows or i'll present yet another possibility which this is this is me being extremely optimistic so take that with a grain of salt don't necessarily trade on this idea but the possibility of a near-term cure for the virus could allow us to break through the downtrend and and that would probably lead us to that scenario you mentioned with the the sugar highs of recent years being the the normal. So, yeah, so I'm I'm happy you brought that up because that this is my broader the broader point that I have as my kind of worldview slash thesis the share of I think that the sugar highs of recent years, as you put it very succinctly, are indeed sugar highs. And I think I might have tweeted about this, but. To me, you know, 2018 to 2000 to, you know, a month ago felt very much like if you've seen the movie The Big Short, uh, the scene where they're in my, they're in South Florida and they're talking with the mortgage brokers and, you know, they're with the two bros who are laughing about the fact that, you know, they were bartenders a year ago and now they've got a boat or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just raking them. And to some extent, I think that, that kind of... Um, is an example of or a manifestation of the economy in the past year or so in terms of you know things were just kind of too good and you know, there were there were lots of different 
little signs, you know, housing wasn't necessarily excessive as it was in 2007 or 2008 or whatever, but, you know, people are buying increasingly expensive cars on increasingly long loads, you know, thing, things like that in terms of, you know, there, and there was a great Wall Street Journal article on that. Of people are taking out seven-year loans now. People are rolling over negative equity from their prior car, et cetera. Um, but it's just the type of thing where everyone was kind of living very well because we were in this fictional or real great economy, but I feel like we were very overstretched. So, you know, the, and not, not to, you know, belittle or not to insult this, but, you know, there's the families in the Midwest that are, you know, making a hundred thousand dollars a year, buying a $60,000 pickup truck and, you know, taking a cruise vacation twice a year and things like that. You know, that's, that's all fine and well when things are going good, but, you know, as soon as somebody gets laid off, that comes to a screeching halt. So, so in my opinion, I think that this economic scare, regardless of whether it lasts a month or three months or six months or a year, is just kind of going to put a little bit of fear back into people and say, you know, whether or not somebody loses their job, like, oh my God, I was spending my entire paycheck. We were saving nothing for the past few years. We were having a lot of fun, but, you know, we can't do that anymore. So in my opinion, I think that a lot of, fat is going to get taken off the top in terms of eating out, going on vacations, things of that nature. Um, and, I, and I don't say that from any sort of high horse. You know, I, I work in a job where it's very dependent on <clears throat> a thriving economy. So, you know, if we do another, another one of these in six months, there's a good chance that I'm unemployed. So, you know, I, I speak from a uh, position of, you know, being at risk of the very heady economy continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so that, that's why I think that as you put it very well, we were at a sugar high and I don't think that we will return to that sugar high. And, you know, in terms of the market itself, multiples were extended. You know, I think a lot of the stock market gains in the past year or so up to the peak were based on multiple expansion, not really earnings growth. And in 2019, I think earnings growth was very small. And so it's this type of thing where, you know, the market was already, I don't know, you know, call it 20% overvalued and, you know, call it 20% of earnings might get shaven off the top just in terms of, you know, companies making a lot of money, but people just enjoying the good time. So in my opinion, you know, there, um, everyone says in a bear market, there's violent rallies. I'm certainly expecting those, but I don't think that in any organic way, we will get back to, you know, the GDP or stock market highs that we saw in late 2019 or early 2020 mm-hmm. immediately or in the near term future. But, but like I said, you know, don't bet against the fed is something that has been well heated over the past years. So who knows whether the markets can be, you know, manipulated to some extent, but I, but I don't think that the real economy, you know, I don't think that businesses are going to do as well as they did in the past couple of years. And you know, that that's a shame, but it's, a little belt bucking it, buck, belt buckling, and you know Americans are known for that. We went through the Great Depression, we went through lots of other tough times, so you know we'll make it through it, and eventually there will be some light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think from from say those December twenty fourth, twenty eighteen lows through the February twenty twenty highs, you could almost buy any stock long, and you would have done well with that position, and and of course. In the time period since then, you almost could have shorted about anything and done well. But 
as I mentioned in the last episode, which I don't know if I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it or not, but um, despite the fact that you could short almost anything over this recent market period and have done well with that position, there have been a few that have been better than others, particularly Boeing and Tesla, definitely, but also Carvana and Planet Fitness and Cruise Lines have been tremendously good as a short. And airlines would have been really good. Maybe a couple others that I forget to mention, but yeah, I, I'm so disappointed in myself that I didn't make the connection with the airlines because you know I've been on this boat for forever, and I've also you know I am a virus anti-truther in terms of you know I respect that it's a serious cause for concern for the general population, and also more so you know identified it as being a potential economic threat. But I just didn't put two and two together. Even when Boeing started crumbling, you know, I, I was kind of swing trading United Airlines, you know, at various times within the past six or eight weeks. I had, you know, $75 puts or $85 calls or whatever, just trading it around. And while we were watching China get locked down and, you know, I was thinking seriously that this is going to hit us next, for whatever reason, that mental bell did not ring to say, oh my God, you know, air traffic's going to be destroyed in the United States. Why don't you just like, get seriously short this so it's it's i'm sure that every you know investor feels like that whether it's long or short in hindsight of this idea was so obvious you were already looking at it why didn't you trade on it and i i feel that way a lot in terms of you know i i got what i needed to out of bowen could have been an even better trade if you know i woke up from a coma this morning and you know didn't sell anything on the way down but that's not the way that the world works but i'm equally or more disappointed that I sort of didn't identify the tangential trades that were screamingly obvious, but for whatever reason, I was sort of blinded to. But yeah, I, it, you've, you identify a lot of the uh, other good ones. And, you know, my real life buddy and Twitter buddy, Paul Hutner, you know, he was a big Carvana guy. And I think that he's done well in that. Kubico, uh, you know, I, I don't know him in real life, but, you know, everyone is him on Twitter. He, once again, kind of just lost opportunities. You know, he was harping about the cruise line trade. And I think that basically based on his recommendation, you know, I got some $100 puts a few weeks ago and then it went down to, you know, 90 or $85. And I was like, oh, fantastic. I made some money. A week later, it was at 50. And a week later, after that, I was at 25 or whatever it is. So it's the type of thing where, you know, I think that at least from speaking for me personally, perhaps not everybody else, my biggest flaw trading in this market has been being so conditioned to fear the dip buying that you know every day that a position in, that i'm short is down you know 10 percent over I'm like oh my god this could definitely rebound tomorrow let's take some off the table and the next day it's down 10 percent. the next day it's down 10 percent. and obviously these types of uh this type of trading activity doesn't happen all that often but you know i wish i would have had more conviction and i wish i would have had a little more just being able to step back in the situation and appreciate like, oh my God, you know, airlines are screwed. Cruise ships are screwed. You know, Boeing, Boeing is done because airlines are done and just kind of been able to hang on there a little bit longer. But you know, I got, I got one of you two out of Boeing. And as we talked about last time, that was, was a moral crusade first and foremost. And it was a trade and ended up being a very good trade, but uh, just seeing it, you know, I, I think that I, I probably got out of, 
a majority of my position around 200 and, you know, going from 320 to 200 in a couple of weeks, I was like, you know, that's, I can't look a gift horse in the mouth. Mm -hmm. And then the next week or two, it went from 200 to 100. So, you know, lessons learned for next time. And, you know, I, I don't know that the next down leg will be anytime soon, but, um, but it's just, you know, an educating experience as somebody who was a, you know, novice, but budding short seller who finally saw things go in his direction and just kind of needed to keep a cooler head and didn't know how to do that for the first time when things started actually, instead of being the bubble market, being the, you know, bubble popping market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is something that I've thought a lot about over the last couple of weeks. Well, the last week, especially, uh, and have tweeted about, and I think what I've, the, the realization that I've come to is that the, the rapidness of this drop with the coronavirus is far beyond any normal market activity. So I've, maybe I'm just justifying to myself that I'm not an idiot and stuff, but the to ex, to expect a fall that quick is is stupid and and really thinking back to the the early days of Tesla Q Twitter before I had this podcast even uh, I remember buying really really low out of the money puts of Tesla hoping that it would have a really rapid fall and that I would have a, a immediate windfall from that singular trade but ultimately that's extremely rare and to time such a move is is not something that that should be possible really um so i've taken solace in the fact or or justified to myself that the profit taking that i've done over the last 6 weeks especially has actually been the right the right tactical move and strategic move and is a lot more sustainable for the long term to, to make moves like that, as opposed to if I had bought some really far out of the money Boeing puts and not looked at them until today, which would have been fantastic, but it's not, not really yeah. strategically and tactically the right move. So that- yeah, I'm with, I'm with you on that. And, you know, I, I was the same way where, you know, I, I don't know if you'll censor this, but, I think I was the original shit put God on Tesla. And, you know, I, I regret the money that, you know, get made back in the day, but I sort of had the same philosophy and all things considered, you know, other than the money I wish you could get back, I, I was very okay in current sight and in hindsight with the chances I took. Like I got very short with, you know, those type of disaster puts in I believe the fall of 2008 when they were having trouble delivering cars when we were doing the Lathrop Lemon thing. Mm-hmm. And then I was also, you know, disaster short in the spring of 2019 when, you know, the, they were low on cash. And both of those times they managed to claw out alive in terms of, you know, they repainted the cars in Lathrop and they survived operationally and they raised money in the spring of 2019, which is, I think, when I kind of got out of the disaster Tesla trade and the Tesla trade overall. But, but yeah, so I, but I agree that, you know, I, that sort of taught me that expecting that is a little bit insane, which is why when that, that actually happened, you know, I wasn't able to fully step back and appreciate it. And, you know, I just wanted to sort of, you know, 
take what was given to me and, you know, not expect things to keep disintegrating. And, uh, and I think, I think for over the long term, that makes a lot of sense too. you know, where we definitely are in an interesting market. You know, I think that Boeing is down something like 70% in, you know, probably five weeks. I think Carvana is about the same. I'm sure there's a couple others that are about the same. I think the airlines, the cruise lines, maybe even more. So yeah, it is just the type of thing where you don't get a global depression being the catalyst very often. And that, that is, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think I said that about Boeing in terms of, you know, I, it's a little bit sad to be, to make money and not be fully correct in terms of this, is what takes it down, but I'll take the money. And I think that people have said that about Tesla too, in terms of, you know, I didn't expect Corona to be the thing that takes it down, but I'll take it. Um, but yeah, it's literally a black swan event pretty much in terms of, I think that you know, people are talking about 20% unemployment rates and things like that. And once again, you know, I could be one of those people including that statistic sooner rather than later, but yeah, you can't, you can't really, plan for a disaster to get even more of a disaster so you know you just gotta to some extent hedge your philosophy and trade as if things are going to recover because that's what they've done for forever and you know that's what might happen next week depending on stimulus package Mm -hmm. etc etc so you you just gotta take take the gains when you can get them and you know live to trade another Mm -hmm. day aggressively take the profit that's that's been my philosophy for the last six weeks and i've actually personally i've i've done far far better over the last six weeks than i did up through february 4th when tesla hit the stratospheric 968.99 price or whatever it was um and i find it ironic also that you know you and i as tesla q people back in 2018 into 2019 bought all these crash puts and ironically if we had bought the complete opposite of that on the call side going both going into the quarter three 2019 financial results call i i used to try to avoid calling it an earnings call because tesla very rarely had earnings Um, and then again throughout the december 6th through February 4th period, that that two-month period, if we had bought calls that were as far out of the money as the the puts that we had bought before, we could have done really, really well on the the long side. And it's it's just, uh, to me, it's ironic that that really bad strategy would have worked on that side. And then, again, it it somewhat would have worked on this, on the, the, the other side of it as Tesla share prices come back down to closer to reality, but still far above reality. But, but now of course the, the volatility is so high that it would, the payout ratio wouldn't have been nearly as good as, as on the call side or, or on the Boeing side on the, the downside here recently. But yeah, I think that, I think that one of the lessons that I've learned from, the market over the past, you know, Tesla over the past six months, the market over the past couple of months is that betting on cheap volatility is often a good bet. Like I said earlier today, it was, you know, play money. But you know, yesterday at the close, I bought Tesla 420 calls for the fun of it. And, you know, 
whatever three or four times my money today and it was you know a very small bet it wasn't any type of major win but but basically especially in this type of expensive volatility environment finding what is cheap can often yield rewards um so you know i think that's the lesson i've learned with tesla and even with boeing over the past year or so just you got to play both sides of things you know it, it's fine to be intellectual and one-sided on terms of you know this company is a fraud this company is complete garbage etc but when you see you know a chart or the price action or the news flow or whatever show that in the immediate term things might change and you know a call is a third of the price of a put you know why not buy one and see what happens mm-hmm. so um but yeah so i you're you're right that that with the vix at you know 70 or whatever no immediate or long-term call or put is cheap in any sense of the imagination but uh it's fun to kind of play around and you know just buy one or two here and see if we get a pop tomorrow a drop tomorrow and you know, it's been a trader's environment and I'm not a trader. So I'm kind of just trying to survive through the trough until we hopefully get to calmer times and you know, make a few strategic longer term bets. Uh, but it's been a very interesting time to be in the markets because you know, I, I think you're about the same age as me. So I have no idea if you were investing much during the financial crisis. You know, I, I was still in college and you know, might have had some beer money in a trading account, but wasn't doing a whole lot back then. But this is sort of the first real uncertain time that I've, you know, seen things go up and down this rapidly. So it's been interesting trying to learn how to navigate it. Yeah, I, I just started my first ever self-directed trading account in late 2014. So, and I didn't follow it nearly as closely up through like 2016 as I do now, of course. But back to the the whole volatility question and and far out of the money options and what, well, this doesn't really relate to that, but what are your thoughts about technical analysis and financial Twitter slash FinTwit and how much, uh, how much you've learned from being part of the Tesla Q community? So in terms of financial or uh, technical analysis, <clears throat> you know, I, so like I said, I'm, I'm not an active enough you know, day trader or, trader in general to really uh, need it or want it or use it, but it has been uncanny how it has appeared to work in some cases. And I, I think it, it it is somewhat of a self, not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but yet when it works, it looks like it works and then it doesn't work, you know, 80% of the time. And you kind of ignore that because when it works, it works really impressively. But, you know, just for example, Boeing, like I, I wish that I would, well, I wish I would have fallen a little more close because, you know, if you read the chart, it kind of said that after 300, there was no real support until, you know, 280 and there was no real support until there was a gap at like 200. And then after that, it was like support at 100. So theoretically, I think that there were some chart readers out there who basically said, you know, if it breaks 200, it's going to 280. If it breaks 280, it's going to 200. If it breaks 200, it's going to 100. And had I fully believed that, then you know, I would have made a lot more money than I did just kind of holding the entire time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like I said, you know, there's pl- probably plenty of cases where it bounces off of the fake 280 resistance or it bounces off of the fake 200 resistance. So, you know, I, I'm not trying to be that nimble in and out and trade each bounce and make it work. So to some extent, there have been a lot of things that I've watched that have played out the way that technical analysis would have said that it played out. 
But at the same time, the reason the boom went down is because, you know, globally, global aviation is completely messed up right now. So, you know, had it broken 300 in a normal economy without the coronavirus, I don't think it necessarily would have gone to 280 and definitely not gone to 200 and definitely not, definitely not got gone to 100. So, you know, it's kind of a, you know, mystical type of thing where sometimes it works and then it doesn't. So I, so I, I put, I recognize it and, um, you know, there might be some time where if I'm thinking about going along something and the chart looks really ugly or thinking about going towards something and the chart looks really bullish based on the people who know how to read the charts better than I do, I might think a second time, but in general, that's, you know, beyond my competency to actually trade fully off of that. Then there's the people that would say that the chart is a reflection of the reality. So the, the technicals are a reflection of the fundamentals. So they're not really in opposition at all. They're just one and the same. They're just different ways to look at the same thing. And I may have just made that up. I, I don't know. But I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like Mr. Jin would say something like that. No, I mean, I, and I, I think once again, I think that that's you know, eighty percent of the time works every time or whatever the quote is. But you know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's occasions where you know, bone start breaks at the exact same time that the fundamental breaks, and you claim that they're correlated. But you know, over this could be me being, you know, a baggy. I'm not a Warren Buffett follower, but you know, just general investor versus a typical trader, but. You know, in general, I think that news flow, fundamentals, et cetera, are going to drive the stock price over the medium term. So once again, I don't think the Boeing goes on 70% because it breaks a technical level on a chart. I think it goes down 70% because their business is totally messed up. So, you know, and, and but that's an, extre- that's an extreme example. So, you know, there's probably yeah. lots of stocks that go down 10% because they break this key support level and things like that. And I think it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy whether it's actual human traders or day traders or algorithms or whatever so like i said i think i think there's value in it but i think that it explaining massive price moves is probably uh not legitimate but you know there's there's probably traders that are a lot richer than me and i'm not rich at all so there's probably traders that are just a little bit richer overall who have followed charts to massive gains and uh you know power be to them if it's working them. and and about 18 months or or longer ago i probably would have been completely in the the camp of of fundamentals are what matters technicals that's just mumbo jumbo but over time i've i think i've shifted a lot more towards thinking that the technicals actually do jive with or jive i should say not jive with the with the fundamentals so i i so, so i don't think they're really so, in opposition so so riddle me this what fundamental made tesla go to nine hundred dollars last year the chinese communist party fundamental <laughs> that that's my that's my number one well th- th- that that's one of about i think there was multiple factors in that but the chinese communist party and their support they my opinion this is my opinion uh shared by a few people but maybe a number of people i don't know but my opinion is that the chinese communist party used tesla to as a pawn during the trade war 
there was one video in particular on the Global Times Twitter account where they showed the Tesla factory and they were like, oh, see how great China is. Uh, we, we're open to business. We can get this foreign company's factory built super fast. So they they supported Tesla to an extreme extent. And part of my view on this is is fueled by uh, when I interviewed Phoenix 10, who, if I'm not mistaken, has direct experience building an automotive manufacturing plant in China. So his his experience in that regard is is far superior to most people in the U.S. But so the Chinese Communist Party, as part of the trade war, which how many trade war headlines were there? It's like I'm sure there were at least 20 over months and months of time where we were about to win the trade war with China and all this stuff. So my opinion is that the Chinese Communist Party used Tesla, used Elon Musk as a pawn in that trade war as part of their propaganda campaign. And subsequent to that, I feel like they've continued to use Elon Musk in with, with this coronavirus and the messaging related to that in in some small ways. And there were, and and there's also the angle of SpaceX technology, China's space program, they're trying to to accelerate that. So having access to Elon Musk since he's the founder of SpaceX and chief funder and chief engineer self-declared of SpaceX, the Chinese Communist Party wants access to that. So them helping Tesla gets gets them access to that when they couldn't otherwise get it because of the CFIUS. Uh, I forget exactly what that acronym stands for, and I may have jumbled the letters. But So that's one, Chinese Communist Party. Two is Renaissance Technologies, which I, I actually now own the, the new book, uh, The Man Who Figured Out the Markets. I, f- I forget the exact name, but it's just come out recently, and it's about Renaissance Technologies and Jim Simons and, and how, they, how they started and what they've done. And, and that, I think, is starting to shift my views about technical analysis a little bit. But uh, they entered a massive, massive position in Tesla long in quarter four of 2019. So I think that they likely um, held their position maybe all the way up through most of that rise to 900 and above. And I think that they likely helped keep the share price high uh, through one of the Fridays when it ultimately hovered right at 800 for a weekly options pin, which Tesla does far more often than probably any other company, as I've noted many, many times on Twitter. So, And my theory is that Renaissance Technologies likely exited most of their Tesla long position at $800 per share and above. So Renaissance Technologies... Combined with Susquehanna, maybe, with some of their options uh, hedging, and the Chinese Communist Party. That's that's the fundamentals that, the quote-unquote fundamentals that helped Tesla rise to 900. O- along with Elon's bonus thing factoring in there. So, I rambled way too long there. I apologize. No, that was, that, that was good, and I feel like I, I'm the only person rambling, so I appreciate you rambling every once in a while. And that brings me to a good point. 
not that I'm any type of person that makes good points, but I think that, and I've, I've learned this as well, fighting Boeing on the way up is that I think there's actually really three factors, which you very well articulated there. So number one, it's the technicals in terms of the chart. Number two is the fundamentals in terms of the actual business performance. And number three is market participants. And you basically highlighted those in what you just talked about. And Boeing, you know, in the case of Boeing, it was sort of the ETF inflow. You know, I think Boeing was a hedge fund darling for a long time in terms of, you know, they were a company that was making money buying back stock. They were just going up and up. So a lot of people are just sort of blindly long it for the long term. And, you know, you highlighted that sort of swing traders or technical traders, you know, got into Tesla and that will help pump it up. Um, so I think, I think that's a point worth making just in terms of, I think it's actually three factors, not two factors in terms of the chart says something and perhaps that's related to the, you know, market participants who read the chart and get in big, such as the Susquehanna's and things like that. And then there's the actual fundamentals of the business, which, you know, are daddy Buffett might say that over the longer term, that's, you know, the weighing mechanism versus the voting mechanism, but that definitely loses out in the short term versus the other two factors. Mm-hmm. And and then, then there's the whole uh, stool theory that you talked about with the narrative with Tesla. So the narrative definitely. Oh man, we got to look this. We got, I got to look this up. It's, it's been a long yeah, time. Look, look up your stool theory. So Elmer's stool theory basically is. It's, it's, work, it's worked up until now. Let's see if it keeps working yeah, in the future. So the, the main thing, point of the stool theory is that the narrative is what drives Tesla's share price. And for the period from December 6th, 2019 through February 4th, maybe even February 15th or so of 2020, Elon Musk was fully in control of the narrative. There was no negative news. All negative news was suppressed instantly or completely ignored. And really, there wasn't nearly as much during that period as there had been over the summer and subsequent to to, to then, uh, particularly February 25th, I think, was when the NTSB hearing occurred uh, regarding the Walter Huang crash. So Elon controlled the narrative for that period of time of two months, a little bit more than two months. But subsequent to that, he has lost the narrative considerably, and he... I agree with not that. have control of it right now, definitely, especially with the state of California possibly being on lockdown as of tomorrow slash today, the 20th of it's, March. It's confirmed that it's on lockdown. So if the state's on lockdown, I'm not sure how many cars they're going to be making and delivering. So maybe maybe they can still financially deliver with their low touch options. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah, I don't I, I, I didn't read what that press release was in terms of what that actually means, but it's obviously just something absurd to try to not completely blow the quarter. But you know, it's game. You know, we're we're going into a recession to depression, so trying to keep the facade of business normal is just silly at this point. But you know, I guess that's the way he's going to go out. So we'll see how that goes for him. So Elmer, I know I I don't think it's a secret despite you being an anonymous Twitter user, I don't think it's a secret that you live in New York city. No. Um, so what, what's the quarantine been like for you in New York city so far? Just give, 
well, uh, whatever description you want to give <laughs> about that. I miss going to work. You know, I love my wife, but it's difficult living in a 500 square foot apartment all the time together. Um, so being cooped up all this week has certainly been a different experience. But overall, the city has not yet really shut down, which is probably to the detriment of virus control. <clears throat> you know, every mm-hmm. every day this week, I've gone out to get lunch and dinner, pick up from a restaurant. I think that we went out to eat and sit down for the last time on Monday night, and after that, they prohibited that. Um, but I walked out for lunch today, and you know, still plenty of people running around. The amount of traffic still seems to be suspiciously high in terms of I don't even know where people are going because I feel like most white collar employees are working at home now. So I don't know what so many cars on the road are doing, Um, but it really hasn't changed too much yet. And I feel like that's going to change rapidly in the near future because, you know, California, I think went on complete lockdown today. Um, And I think once that happens here, then activity will get much slower, but we've still been living pretty normal lives and, you know, I feel not bad, but nervous about, you know, when I go to the grocery store, there's still plenty of people who are octogenarians there who are trying to buy food and things like that. And it's just, you know, the potential spread of the virus has not yet stopped because there's still a lot of social interaction, whether it's a food basket or, you know, the credit card terminal or something like that. And it's, you know, it's, this isn't smallpox in terms of it being the most contagious thing in the world, but there's still people mostly living their normal lives other than just having to work from home. And uh, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, I, I think that, so like I said, I think most, a lot of people felt that Bill Ackman yesterday, or I think it was yesterday on TV was quite alarmist in terms of calling for complete lockdown because otherwise things are going to get a lot worse before they get a lot better. And I don't think that he was wrong because there's just still so much interaction and, you know, people in, I think New York is at least average, if not above average in terms of promoting social distancing and, you know, you can't go eat anymore versus people in Florida still going on spring break. I think people, Mm -hmm. people in, I have a buddy in Houston and, you know, he was in the office until Tuesday of this week. People, you know, his company just demanded it until they decided that that was the end of things. But it's going to be a very long tail in the United States, in my opinion, because, you know, San Francisco was locked down earlier this week. I think Boston might have been, I think New Jersey, like Hoboken had a curfew as of maybe Monday or Tuesday, but, you know, New York, there's still interaction there's places that still have very little restriction. So it's, I, I think people are finally starting to smarten up, but I think it's gonna, it, it'll be to our detriment in terms of dead old people and uh, depressed economic activity that the entire country has taken so long to just do the needful and do what China did and just pretty much stop everything for a relatively limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seems like two weeks is the the key amount of time. Uh, New York, I feel like, would be one of the most extreme cases of of this virus, as far just because of the the density of people. Uh, as far as my limited travels around the world, New York is the most dense 
place that I've ever been, I think. Um, where I live, it's a lot less dis- densely populated. And I actually, um, I, I worked from home yesterday and I went to the office today. And I'm almost ashamed to admit that the, uh, the, the less traffic on my commute was actually quite pleasant. Um, last week, I, I had a, a flight for work and thinking about airports being less crowded was a, a pleasant thought, which I might be a, a horrible, horrible, evil person for thinking such a thing, but that, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The fact that I went to the office, I don't feel bad about because there were literally like six people in our office and we have room for about 30 people or so. So I didn't feel bad about it. And we were able to properly socially distance ourselves and wash our hands and, and all, that, all that good stuff. So I, I, I feel the same way. And I was guilty as well of, as I think I shared on Twitter, I was in London two weekends ago and I think that was right around when the outbreak started in the U S in terms of, you know, there were starting to be cases in New York. And, you know, it, if I go back on some, you know, uh, Donald Trump hating syndrome, you know, we obviously botched caring about this. And once again, a missed trading opportunity and a missed public health opportunity. You know, we saw what was happening in China. We saw well, we saw what happened in China at that point. Basically, it was past tense. We saw what was happening in Italy in the current tense. And in America, we just still didn't you know, do anything to change behavior, despite the fact that it was very calculatable that what happened there would happen here. Um, but yes, so I, you know, I went from New York to London two weekends ago and came back. And both in New York and London at that point, life was still very normal and nobody cared. You know, riding the subway to work, there's, you know, three people on a car that has a hundred people in it wearing masks and, th- and things like that. Uh, but everyone was still living their normal lives, despite if you were a uh, hypochondriac or, you know, conspiracy theorist at that point, or somebody who just knew that this was going to happen, knowing that would be a significant thing. And that one additional slide tangent I'll go on, it was interesting. Um, so uh, when we were listening, when I was listening to CNBC, I think yesterday, uh, Bill Ackman went on and did his, the world, the sky is falling type of spiel. And he talked about, I think he had been self-isolating since late February. And he talked about how a lot of his partners and employees thought that it'd be silly. And then later that day, I think they had Sandy Wheel on, who was the chairman of City back in the day. And he said that he had also been self-isolating for multiple weeks and, you know, missed his grandkids and things like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a global cabal conspiracy conspiracy theorist, but it seems as though some of the, you know, upper echelon of society people either got the memo, were advised by personal people, or perhaps were just, you know, individually motivated to self-isolate before a lot of people felt compelled to do the same thing. But, um, you know, you know, if I had a time machine to go back a month, obviously everyone was shorted every single thing on the market, but also probably self-isolated to, especially if you're up the age that it actually matters to, you know, we'll both be fine statistically, even if we get the disease. Um, mm-hmm. But but it was it's a type of thing where it's like a car crash where it's, you know, foreseeable, 
but in the moment it's like in slow motion and you don't actually react to it so uh it it's just interesting that it took everyone so long to wake up to something that we've essentially in hindsight knew was definitely coming mm-hmm. yeah I, as as an avid fin twit person i i saw all these all these tweets of of things from china of people dropping dead in the street or not or not dropping dead but just collapsing in the streets uh body bags going out the rumors which i, I still don't know still don't know what what i believe or what i should believe about the true death numbers from china but there were the rumors about the crematoriums that were operating 24 7 just burning bodies to uh get rid of the virus uh from where it had killed those people with uh the official numbers now being that italy has passed china in total deaths that adds further uncertainty about what to believe but it's it's clearly not a nothing burger. I mean, nobody nobody would say that now uh, that has any kind of operating brain cells. But uh, there are people who have suggested that it has some similarities to the flu or may have some seasonality aspects like the flu. So I saw earlier today that you had tweeted a meme uh, that that mentioned that the Tesla Q libertarian side of things on Twitter and Elon Musk actually kind of have similar views about this, this virus. Yeah. Do you want to describe the meme? Yeah. So it's, I think it's the epic handshake meme and it's basically two, two theoretically, uh, philosophically disjointed people agreeing on the same thing. And yeah, you know, I think that just the flu bros are, you know, I think I tweeted that I don't see any profit in that opinion. You know, it's, I've never been a truther in anything other than perhaps Tesla Q, which has shown me negative profit personally. And, you know, hopefully will show us all profit in the future, but you know, being a contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, I think is silly, you know, and I, this is perhaps going off on an even wider tangent, but, you know, there's a popular podcaster who I don't particularly like in general, but, you know, he had a 9-11 truth around his episode. And I think after that, you know, had fallback from both his normal listeners and supposedly the mainstream media, which I think was probably a sham et cetera et cetera but you know i don't see the point of being contrarian and dying on that hill so you know saying that this is just the flu saying that you know the death rates are nothing saying that this study done by you know some twitter scientist versus an actual scientist proves that it's nothing i just don't get the point of that you know it's and i think that the evidence has shown in China, now in Italy, soon to be in the US, that really the only way to not have a complete uh, human travesty is to shut down the economy. So that, that's all that matters. You know, it's the type of thing where maybe in your perfect libertarian universe, you sacrifice 
5% of the old population to keep the economy going. And, you know, all the young people get sick and have a cough for a while. Some of them have to go to the hospital. Everyone who's seven years old who goes to the hospital, you just tell them, sorry, you're going to die because we got to save the young people. But, you know, it's clearly a serious enough illness that young and old people get sick, old people die, young people generally don't die, but they still use up resources. So to pretend like it's absolutely nothing, to pretend like the, f- the flu is a joke because, you know, I have gotten the flu myself before. Pretty much everyone I know in my life has gotten the flu before. I haven't gone to the hospital. I haven't been aware of anybody in my life who's my age has gone to the hospital. But, you know, there's plenty of anecdotes about people who are 25, 35, 45 years old going to the hospital over this. And the problem with that is that, you know, thanks to not even, I won't even turn this into late stage capitalism thing, but I think that I tweeted out that in New York State, state, not just city, there's something like 3,600 ICU beds in at a given time, only like 600 of them are free. And, you know, that's fine in, in normal course in terms of you got some gunshot victims, you got some people that have serious illnesses, you've got people who have heart attacks, et cetera, but very loud car noise in the background. Um, you know, it's, it's in a situation like this, you know, I think New York has 3,500 3, reported cases or something like that. And you know, not all of them are ICU, but probably the ICU beds are pretty much full at this point. You know, I think we're trying to get a hospital ship up here from uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I think that they're talking about turning hotels into hospitals for people who do not have the coronavirus. So that, you know, if you're just having a baby or, you know, need to get an operation or something like that. You go to a hotel that isn't contaminated with the content that you go to a hotel instead of a hospital that is contaminated. Um, but it, it's just, you know, a society changing type of thing. So I just don't get the worldview of it not mattering. Like, you know, I, I have a lot of insensitive beliefs when it comes to some things, but it's the type of thing where I don't get how you can honestly intellectually argue that it doesn't matter because it's going to mess up the hospital system it's going to mess up you know our economy are you actually going to go out to eat when you're coughing and the couple next to you is 50 years old and they're you know staring you in the face because they might die because you uh you have the coronavirus so i just i just don't get the argument that it's not a big deal but you know some people have apparently run the numbers and come to their independent conclusions. And I think those conclusions are quite silly, but, uh, you know, I, I think that thus far the evidence has proven them wrong in terms of every country that has battled this has taken it as a very serious matter. I think that the evidence will unfortunately continue to prove them wrong in terms of, you know, the numbers of people who get infected and who unfortunately might perish. Um, but, you know, if you want to die on that hill of, Oh, the fatality rate only ended up being 0.5% and the flu is 0.2%. And, you know, it's pretty much the same thing, all things considered. Then, you know, I hope that they didn't have a, you know, family member or a friend or who perished or didn't have a family member who lost their job because the restaurants were shut down. But it seems to me very silly to just be trying to argue something that is disproven very clearly by society's justified reaction to what we're going through Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna somewhat uh disagree with you here and say that i 
I'm not a I'm not a just the flu guy at by, by any means. I'm not a just the flu guy. This is clearly a different virus, different different animal that we're dealing with. But the transmissibility and the way that it's transmitted via respiratory droplets is similar to the flu. The flu does have seasonal aspects as far as the weather with humidity and temperatures outside and stuff. So I, I, I do hold out hope. This is me being hopeful that it maybe will get better because just because of seasonality aspects. As we sit here, uh, it's now bled past midnight into 3-20-2020. So we're literally within, I, I don't remember exactly what day the vernal equinox is but it's within the next two days so the first day of spring is almost upon us so my hope as a humanitarian and lover of of humans is that that seasonal change in the northern hemisphere will aid in reducing how much this virus gets transmitted additionally i hope that that there are some treatment options that soon become available I, I hold out some optimism that by maybe next tuesday the 23rd of march that we'll have uh some we collectively as humanity will have some good insights into the efficacy of of some various treatments even if it's one of those treatments that elon musk has been touting for for some time now even even if that's what the best treatment is i absolutely hope that it is effective in treating people who have have caught this virus because it is a, a very very dangerous virus it's not just the flu it's different um my my own wife in my own house I, i've had to not really argue with but her her point of view is that while we're taking this virus very very seriously shouldn't we take the normal flu every season seriously? Because there are hundreds of thousands of people that die from the flu. So from a, from an angle, my wife is a just the flu person, but she's far more, I would say, uh, towards the liberal side of things as opposed to libertarian, where I would say I'm more a libertarian. So, so my hope is that seasonally that the, that this virus transmission starts to decrease and that as humans that we're able to find an effective treatment for it as soon as possible because economically the economic hit that we may take from from this virus and our reaction to it is dangerous and detrimental and i do feel like we're on the verge of either i i don't i'm not sure that a recession with this is even possible. I think I think it's either going to be full on depression, or we will find a, a a treatment within the next maybe five days. That and and it literally may be that time frame. Like if we don't find it within the next five days, we may be uh, inevitably headed to a depression. Or if we do find a treatment within that time period, maybe we can get closer to normal and maybe a, maybe not avoid a recession but maybe keep the the recession mild so i think the range of possibilities is 
either mild recession or full-on depression and maybe not any in between so it's a very very crucial couple days here that we we got coming up in my opinion i i just started rambling yeah. again but yeah i like the rambling no I, so i think there's i think there's some good points there so to refute your wife and i apologize in advance for doing that uh you know i think flu deaths in the united states are something like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50,000 a year not 100,000 which is kind of the same order of magnitude, but not completely different. But just, you know, if 100,000 people die from this, is worse than the flu. If 5,000 people die from this, is better than the flu. Um, but either way, you're, you and she are not wrong in that the flu kills a decent amount of people per year. And I think it's mostly old people. And I think the flu actually kills like infants and small children too, which so far. Yeah, un- under five-year-olds is, is what made my my wife's heart really hurt so yeah yeah so so i think that you know for better that the coronavirus has not done that um the seasonal aspect is interesting because i think as i'm not the i'm the last person to have this insight but you know the spanish flu was like a uh well we don't know what this what this is going to be like but the spanish flu it was a seasonal flu and the first time it hit you know it killed i don't know the magnitude of people but you know a quarter of the total people and then when it became winter again it killed you know 100 or 200 percent more people and then there was a third wave that killed the same as the original wave so to some extent you know you, you don't one does not want it to be a seasonal flu because that means that we're going to be going through the same thing again in the fall to the other extent, it does give us, you know, a three or four or five month bandwidth to try to figure out cures, uh, vaccines, et cetera, until it comes back again. And we know it might come back again. So I, I think as of right now, the jury is out on whether they expect it to be a seasonal disease or thrive. And I think hot climates so far have been relatively less affected by it but i think there have been you know hundreds of cases in brazil i think that there's been hundreds of cases in some middle eastern countries bahrain uh uae wherever else and i think they've fared somewhat better and you know, it, i think it's unclear whether or not temperature matters but it, it clearly can at least somewhat spread in temperature and i think the southern united states has done somewhat better than the northern united states and you know south florida is summer all year round so I think it's hard to tell right now whether or not that's going to be our saving grace in a couple of months. Uh, but either way, you know, it's 50 degrees here today, which I think is still kind of flu season, flu season temperatures. I think it's going to go up to 70 this weekend. But I think for, you know, a lot of the populated northern areas of the country that we're not going to get that sort of burn off for at least a month or something like that. So we're, we're in the thick of things. But, you know, I, I, I agree that, you know, I'm, it's up for, I, I hope that the uh, disease progression gets less deadly as temperatures warm up and, you know, as people isolate and things like that. So certainly not reading for any pandemic, but it's the type of thing where, as I think we discussed earlier, everyone waited too long to isolate and we're still not doing a great job of it because I'm still going out and getting slices of pizza and things like that. So 
I think it's going to get better before it's going to get worse. You know, California put out a very fantastic memo today of apparently the governor's office expects half of California to get infected, which, you know, I don't know how that math works out, but that's a strike number. And I haven't seen that type of statistic posted by any other country or territory or you know, body of any kind. So I'm not sure if they have some, you know, very bearish math to try to get federal leaders yeah i don't know if there's an angle on that but um but i think everyone's expecting it to get worse before it gets better and you know hopefully the amount of worse it's get it gets is not too extreme because you know we we personally are probably gonna be fine but there's gonna be a lot of people who might not be fine because of it mm-hmm. indeed so with california shutting down i guess we'll see what happens with the tesla fremont factory the big news today was that the Fremont factory and the Buffalo factory are both going to be slowing, if not stopping production, but maybe not until March 23rd. So we'll see what happens with that, with the, the shutdown of the state of California. And we'll see what happens with quarter one deliveries. We're actually, uh, now that it's the 20th of March, we're within two weeks of Tesla's delivery announcement. Uh, Maybe maybe 15 days, I guess, if they are a little bit on the late end of, of when they will announce. So we, we should have some news coming soon. Uh, any, any last things you want to talk about, Elmer, related specifically to Tesla, since this is the Tesla Q podcast, until I rebrand it as a new name <laughs> in the future? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been very happy to see... <clears throat> The general community and my normal actual friends now in New York, you know, benefiting off of the fall from 900 to 400, whatever we close that today, you know, is a ridiculous bubble, but it has been all along. And as I think I had talked about earlier, I sort of, you know, disjointed myself from that after getting burned a couple of times and focused my attention elsewhere, which ended up being a fine pursuit for me. But now I'm sort of able to refocus and it still kind of is something that the numbers don't matter for. And it's amazing that it developed so well, you know, you'd think, I guess, I guess Tesla's probably fallen in proportion to most stocks and most other automakers. You know, I, I have no interest in owning any automaker right now, but people, you know, on Twitter might say Ford or something like that, and I think they've fallen from you know eight to four or something. Uh, and Tesla says, you know, and Tesla's fallen fifty percent, fifty percent from the top as well. But the difference is that their top was kind of unmerited in terms of there was no basis for Tesla deserving to be nine hundred dollars a share. You know, there was no basis for it being two hundred two hundred fifty or three hundred dollars a share. But at least that was within a more slightly more reasonable realm of possibility. So they're they're still kind of doing better than a lot of other stocks. They're still likely to do worse than other stocks, but it's just still so unpredictable in terms of, you know, if they announced they delivered more model wise than people expected and they get a pass on a bad quarter because of the coronavirus, you never know if you know, they're going to get six upgrades from all the analysts who say that they're a tech company, that's a car company and everything like that. So so I personally am still treading lightly when it comes to Tesla. I enjoy 
you know, trading in and out a little bit on some advantageous options if I see them. It doesn't work out all the time. Sometimes it works out. Um, you know, I, I still think that they're ultimately going to go bust, as a lot of companies will in this environment, absent, you know, bailouts, which should still make companies go bust, but you never know whether equity holders are going to be saved you know, to a very substantial degree or just some limited degree or whatever. But you know, I, I think it's, I guess, <laughs> reverting to our earlier conversation. It's interesting that Elon is a virus truther. And I think some of that is part of him just being too smart for his own good. And I think part of it is also him trying to, you know, cover his himself over Trump. Uh, so I think I think part of it is that Elon is a virus truther just intellectually, and I think part of it is that him is covering he is covering for you know Tesla still running operations at a time when nobody should be. Um, so we'll we'll see if they can hang on in light of this economic environment. I still think that you know, I have no insight into what deliveries will be, and I think most past quarters have at least guessed, and sometimes. I've semi-intelligently guessed based on the order tracker, which I always found to be more valuable than a lot of, than a lot of other people did, or you know, just putting my finger in the air. But um, you know, this quarter, I have no idea what they're going what they're going to do. And you know, Europe's obviously weak compared to Channel South and the Netherlands last year, and a lot of Europe's been shut down for pretty much the past two weeks before the America has been. I doubt people taking delivery of cars. And we're getting to that here. And I, you know, I think Tesla is supposed to have this touchless delivery and still try to get cars delivered. But I think in past quarters, they're delivering 2000 cars a day at the end of the quarter or something like that. And there's no way that happens now. But, um, but yeah, so I, I'm still mostly a interested observer on the Tesla trade. I'm happy to see the short people make money over the past couple of weeks and couple of months. And I hope they continue to do that. But I just still have PTSD from Elon being untouchable and Tesla being, you know, the hottest stock on the market for the past couple of years. So I'm not going to have any huge position going into Q1 deliveries or Q1 earnings because you just never know what the reaction to it is going to be. But I very much expect them to be in trouble. And I don't have a horse in the... Tesla's financials are, you know, incorrect race. I think at various times in the past, you know, I pointed out the fact that various balance sheet accounts should have changed and they didn't, or, you know, accounts receivable should have had this known they didn't. Uh, you know, Tesla on their face had $6 billion of cash or something like that at Q4-19. So if that's real, they should be okay for a while. Well, if that's not real, then, you know, they should be filing bankruptcy very shortly. But I'm not, I'm just personally, you know, I've had enough beer. I'm going home to the casino and I'm not going to bet on it, but it should be a very interesting time for Tesla as it will be in the general market. And I'm hoping as always that it's the downfall of Elon it's the downfall of Tesla, but I've just seen so many rabbits pulled out of so many hats that you never know what he's going to do to survive another day. So that's, that's kind of a long way of saying that, I'm rooting for his demise, but I'm still monetarily mostly on the sidelines after learning my lesson in the past. So you you don't have a 
bankruptcy time frame projection for Tesla? No, I mean it's. I think any company is going to have a hard time raising money. My guess for when Tesla is going to go bankrupt is possibly as early as August 2020, assuming that they don't raise capital again. And of course, the the can't raise, can't leave theory has been disproven as recently as about five or five weeks ago, basically, with the February 13th, $2.3 billion equity raise that Elon Musk was able to, to get off at $767 per share. So as we sit here on the 20th of March, 2020, when the share price vacillated between $380 and $450, I think, on the day. Uh, just think about that. With seven seven sixty seven five weeks ago, $2.3 billion. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And that's why I tongue-in-cheek say that I respect Elon because you know, he really pulls off things that would be blush-worthy or unfathomable for any other executive or any other company in terms of, you know, the last time he raised capital was in the spring of 2019 at 200 something dollars a share. The stock rallies literally 300% on pretty much nothing other than, I guess, a couple favorable deliveries reports and things like that. And then he offloads another couple billion dollars at 767 or whatever dollars a share. And, you know, a few weeks later, it's, it's trading in half of that price. And it's just, you know, it's like a penny stock, except that they still are, I don't think they're the largest automaker by, by market cap anymore, but they're still substantially larger than GM and Ford, if I'm not wrong. And I think, mm-hmm. I think maybe Toyota is the only one that is more richly valued than them, but yeah, they're still money losing company. But in, in terms of the bankruptcy, I have no time frame prediction. Um, but you know, it's, it's, they will live and die by the government's generosity in terms of the general economy over the next, you know, one, two, three, six months in terms of, I imagine they're going to be hurting and, uh, you know, reading anecdotes on Twitter, I, you know, there's real estate agents in the Bay area in Los Angeles who wanted to close houses and, didn't get it done in these past couple of weeks because people's wealth was in stock that is now down 20 or 30%. And one of my bull theses over the past, up until a month ago, was that Tesla would sell more cars because of the increase in stock price. And, you know, I think that mm-hmm. the customer and shareholder overlap is significant. You know, there's people that, I mean, you, if you triple, if you triple your money in a couple of months, that provides you a lot of money. Like even if, you know, a random, Californian buys ten thousand dollars of stock in Tesla. You know that becomes thirty thousand dollars. You can buy a Model Three pretty much. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that the wealth effect was real leading up to the, four days ago. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, I, and, literally. And now, like... it's, yeah, it's it's amazing how quickly things change. Um, but I think you know that'll be their detriment. But at the same time, we can already see how much political pool they had by the fact that the factory apparently is finally going to get shut down now after surviving a few days after it should have been shut down by the local Fremont order. I think it took the, you know, Fremont police stopping by and maybe the general California order to actually shut it down. But, you know, he's a political 
uh, force and I am interested not to, you know, I try to avoid conspiracy theories, but, you know, Elon talked about the malaria medicine being a treatment and then our boy Donnie repeated that too. So I have no idea whether they're texting each other or whether that's a coincidence, but either way, you know, Elon was, I think, on an economic, an economic council at some point, and I'm sure he's plugged into some degree and, you know, he is... America's newest auto manufacturer who employs 40,000 people in the United States and another 10,000 people abroad and, you know, has this immense stock market value. So I don't think he's going to be first in line for a bailout, but he's not going to be last in line. So you never know if he gets another $5 billion interest-free loan from the government to, you know, short finances to keep producing cars when there's not a whole lot of demand for them. So that was a long way of saying that he will live and die the same way that most other leveraged companies will over the next six months. And I don't have a handicap of what's going to happen. And I think we started off talking about how I I'm sort of out of Boeing right now. You know, I think that in a completely cutthroat libertarian capitalist capitalist world, Boeing is definitely worth zero right now, but they're obviously a national security interest. You know, they, we, we want for legitimate reasons to preserve commercial aviation, manufacturing, technology, et cetera. But so there, there's so many industries like that, you know, the cruise industry, you get out of here, you know, if they get a bailout, that's, mm-hmm. a, jo- that's a joke. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, small businesses deserve it, but there are going to be, you know, Hilton restaurant, restaurant chains, mom and pop restaurants. You know, there's going to be a long line for people who need bailouts to basically provide three months of wages to their employees before we can get back up and running. And I assume Tesla will be in that line. I assume Tesla will get money. And I assume that that'll keep them going for a while longer. You know, they, they've done a good job playing the musical chair so far. So I would not be, I personally am not and would not be buying, you know, a hundred dollar puts anytime soon, primarily because back in the day when I used to buy them, they cost 10 cents and now they cost $2. So even if, <laughs> even if you're right, the risk and reward is not the same as it used to be thanks to this Hyvix environment. But, you know, I, I think that Trump will do everything he can rightly or wrongly, probably mostly rightly, to be honest, to preserve as many companies and as much economic activity as possible as we weather the storm. And I think that that, that will involve making sure companies don't close up shop. And I also think that you're not going to have every single large travel related company file chapter 11, you know, every, every airline theoretically bankrupt, Boeing theoretically bankrupt, every hotel theoretically bankrupt, you know, every car manufacturer, I don't know, you know, the real one might have some balance sheets to survive this, but definitely teeter around the edge. But you know, it's it's a point where, and I got a really good segue after this to go on a nice political rant. But it's a point where you know you expect a lot of saving to happen, and it's not necessarily even the wrong thing to do. And I just, you know, I don't know that equity will get directly bailed out, but I think that there will be big loans that allows the equity a runway to live or die. And you know, six months from now, a year from now, depending on how bad the virus is, depending on how quickly the economy snaps back will they be going through this again with you know airlines filing bankruptcy when the business doesn't come back or you know revisiting some type of bailout but that that brings me to 
the political point, which since we talked about this first time, I would be remiss to not talk about this this time. Um, one, one of my saddest, one of the saddest parts of my life in the past few months is that my man Bernie couldn't pull through thanks to the, <laughs> thanks to the Southern Boomers voting for demanded Joe Biden. But it is very interesting to me that all of his, nearly all of his policies are being picked up by the Trump administration, you know, for good purpose, but you know, coronavirus tests, I believe on a national level now are mandated to be free. And I think a couple of states started that first. And I think it is a law or it's going to become a law, but yeah, you know, it's, it's essentially Medicare for all in terms of we can't burden people with the ridiculous costs. Cause you know, stories came out about some guy who thought he had it and, you know, went to go get a test and it cost him $1,500 and that's messed up. And that's, the epitome of our current healthcare system overall, and we are temporarily overriding that to make the much senior system of the fact that it shouldn't cost that much at the point of care or ever to get a simple test or to get checked out or even to get you know any sort of real medical treatment. Uh, but it took basically a pandemic for people to realize that. You know, similarly, we're going to have jobs guarantee programs. We're going to have you know social support. So it's interesting that we're going to get a lot of socialism between now and the next six or 12 months, which is totally deserved. And it was, you know, a long time coming, but you know, my bur- my boy Bernie at this point has pretty much lost the democratic primary unless Joe Biden succumbs to the coronavirus. And I'm not rooting, rooting for that, but that's pretty much the only way that Bernie could win at this point. You know, he's very far behind the delegates, but you know, the, the ideas clearly have validity because they have been, you know, deployed by the current administration to deal with a crisis. But it, it pains me that it took a crisis to deal with the fact that, you know, I'm sure you do too, but I pay whatever, you know, 5,000, 8,000, 10,000, I don't even know, dollars in, in uh, premiums a year. And then, you know, there's a $4,000 deductible. And then, you know, if you get any, you're paying $10,000 a year for no medical care. And you're paying $10,000, $10,000 if you have any serious medical problem. And then, you know, I guess if you get cancer and it costs $300,000 or something like that, I guess that's picked up and, you know, your premiums are accounted for. But it's just such a messed up system. And this crisis has shown some light on that. But it's still just sadly going to revert to our normal, typical system as soon as this is over because, you know, Bernie or Biden managed to turn around in South Carolina and then went all the South and then went all the other states. And we were very close to the national inflection point of things should not be this way. And and now we're actually realizing that, but we're going to just flip back to being normal the way things were in a couple of months, hopefully when it's all over. And it's, it's been a roller coaster for me politically to see both the correct ideas be accepted and they're going to be discarded very shortly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be a very interesting next few months in that regard. I I very much like that you brought up the point that, that we need to be on the lookout for Tesla getting a bailout. Uh, you threw out $5 billion, no interest loan as, as a, just a hypothetical, but, but that's the range of possibilities that, that should be considered by Tesla short sellers in particular, as we, I, I say we, cause I have a, a Tesla short position right now. That's non-trivially sized for me. 
Uh, we, as Tesla short sellers, need to be aware that that such a bailout could happen. There are definitely political aspects that that cause people to to like Tesla and think that Tesla should be supported. A lot of that's driven by Elon Musk's purchase of PR and and his crafting of his image as this wannabe world savior, which has its flaws, of course. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's something to keep in mind. And I will, I myself will probably try to avoid those $100 crash puts. Although Elon's margin loans do exist, so there is some level at which his margin loan percentage would exceed the, the acceptable level of his margin loans. So things could get hairy in the future. Don't know the exact level of that. There's not any good way to predict that. That level is very likely higher than it used to be because of the share price rise to nine over $900 per share in February. So that's something to keep in mind. So, yeah, And to, to your point, thus far, and you know, the future... We don't know, but thus far, by my count, Elon has never really lost any sort of political challenge. You know, he tricked the state of New York, my state, into giving him a billion dollars or whatever to set up a factory in Buffalo that never actually moved anything. And, you know, right now is fake making things apparently to be able to to not have to pay back the taxpayer grants depending on employment or output or whatever the situation is. Until shutting down for the coronavirus today. And, you know, he, Nevada was heavily incentivized. You know, he's already, I think, the, the supposed forthcoming factory in Germany is heavily incentivized. I think he's supposedly trying to make another factory in America for the truck, which is obviously going to be a competition. Um, but, you know, but even, or I deviated from the point I want to make, but even through all this, you know, he cheered New York taxpayers out of a billion dollars and yet built a Blasio is still, Groveling him on Twitter today, saying, "Okay, Elon, make us more ventilators." Like, you know, people do not see through the scam unless you're, you know, past the looking glass and the sort of test that you can make. To a normal person, Elon is still a champion, and we might have talked about this the first time, but I think I, I have a friend who works for a uh, fintech company in Silicon Valley, and project with them in 2018 or 2019 about Elon Musk and you know didn't even talk about Tesla being a bad investment just talked about Elon kind of being you know not a nice guy and not an honest guy and he was like you know he's our champion in terms of you know he's the cutting edge guy and he's doing big things so I don't think that the perception of Elon has changed yet and certainly you know the forthcoming eventual huge bust would change that but until then, he sort of still has the goodwill behind him to say, you know, give me another few billion dollars of loans. I've created all these jobs. I've created all these cars. I've taken, you know, all these gallons of gas off the road, et cetera. So uh, it's just the type of thing where he still has the, the momentum in his corner. And I don't think we're quite at the inflection point, but kind of the same way that Boeing got taken down by the coronavirus, not by anything that I, you know, foresaw. I'd, I'd root for the same thing happening for Elon and Tesla, you know, whether it's that, whether it's, you know, Fremont organizing because they're tired of working when California tells them not to or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, as of right now, Elon has the political capital 
because he has the track record of supposedly creating all these jobs and creating all this value. So that's why I expect him to get bailed out and expect him to have at least as smooth as average sailing in this type of crisis. But I very much hope that I'm wrong, that he gets tripped up and, you know, there's some type of scandal or, you know, there's just, they deliver 40,000 cards this quarter and it just becomes clear that they're farce. But I think, I think he's going to hang in there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's got there. at least a few more quarters in him. Yeah. I mean, if you believe the $6 billion of cash, which, like I said, I disclaim absolutely no opinion whether or not that's completely true. But if you assume it's mostly true, then you know, he's, he's got some runway. So I, I applaud your opinion or viewpoint that it's not imminent because I think that's a healthy one to have because, you know, the only, the only uh, downfall of expecting it to take too long is that, you know, September puts are more expensive than June puts or whatever the case might be, but you're still going to you know, make plenty of money if you're right about it. But, you know, I made, I, sorry, I lost a lot of money betting too soon back in the day. So I, as some, as somebody on the wrong side of the equation, I think that going out a bit is definitely a prudent thing to do. Definitely. Well, Elmer, thank you for joining me this evening for episode number 60 of the Tesla Q podcast. Any, any final words before we wrap this thing up? Yeah. So are you buying the dip in anything right now or not really? I actually am very long right now. I, I think there's going to be a, a, a bit of a rally at least to the uptrend, as I've, I've tweeted uh, in reply to Jen, Mr. Jin, our technical analysis guru on Twitter. Uh, I, I do think that there will be a rally in the near future. And I think what truly the inflection point for the market is going to be could very well be next approximately Tuesday, the 23rd, I think, of March 2020. Maybe it's 24th. I not sure the exact date, but Tuesday of next week. And I think what's going to determine the direction of whether we either bounce down from that downtrend or break through it to the upside is whether we truly get this virus licked. So if there's truly a, a cure or an effective treatment for the virus that's proven to be relatively definitive over the next three to four days, I think that's what's going to be the the difference between whether there's a a breakthrough to the upside or a bounce back down from that downtrend line that's already in place. Uh, The way I've got it drawn on my charts, which are on Twitter, if you're interested in technical analysis, you can you can look at my Twitter account, go to the media tab, look for look for uh, either. I think it's a either an ES chart uh, for the mini futures or an SPX chart. And there's a downtrend line, and it it only has really two touch points. One, basically at the high just before the market started going down, and then one one other touch point. I don't remember the exact day, but one of the one of the rallies, the only real big rally that's that's happened so far during this downtrend. And if you look at that line, and then uh, I think earlier tonight on the the 19th of March. I drew the point where I think it could hit again. So I think that's the that's the pivot point of whether we bounce down from that point or go up 
if we actually do have a legitimate cure for this virus. So that's my that that's my market call, and that's act. I mean, I don't I don't want to overstate things, but that's really I I see that being a definitive depression versus not a depression market call, which that's pretty pretty heavy to to make, but. But I think that's I think that's where we're at over the next five days for I mean, seriously, I that's that's my viewpoint. And so I'm just a, I'm just a mid 30s person who's been doing technical analysis for under two years. But that's that's how I see things right now. So I've, um, got, I've got a comment and a question and then a comment after I ask you the question. So, <laughs> so the comment for it. The comment is I admire the boldness in that call especially the specificity of the time frame and i look forward to finding out whether or not you're right and right now as kind of a general market hedge and position i actually have a lot of april 17th 300 spy calls just because they get dirt cheap when the market goes down so you know i don't think that we're getting back to 300 but it's the type of thing where i'm I've got a long position as well. So if we get that bounce, I'm all for it. So so the comment is, I'm on board with you. And I'm very interested to see what it happens. I, I do not necessarily hold faith that we're going to have find a miracle cure in the next couple of days. But you never know. You never know if something is going to be deployed at a hospital and proven to be very effective. Uh, so question leading up to my comment of talking my own book is, other than being generally long, is there anything specific that you've bottom fed on here that you, you know, like the business, like the stock, or you just kind of market long for the bounce overall? I've actually bought a lot of long positions lately. Uh, some of my favorite ones are the ones that I think have had the most potential. 3M is one that I've, I've bought recently. Uh, I, I bought some shares and I bought a, a call position. Uh, actually, I think 2022 call position, $150 strike, I think. I might sell that tomorrow on the 20th of March, uh, depending on what the market does, to just to aggressively take some profits. Uh, Square got really cheap. I was actually looking at charts uh, in the brief time after I got home earlier before we started recording this podcast, and there was a there were some ridiculous percentage rises today on some of my holdings um i i own some some coal stocks uh metallurgical coal one of those was up 70 percent today alliance resource limited partners i'm not saying i recommend anybody buy that it has a ridiculous dividend yield or it, it did when it was four dollars a share and under four dollars a share yesterday and earlier this morning uh but it ended the day at five something like five i don't remember exactly but that was a ridiculous gain uh, there were, I, this is roughly off the top of my head, but 10 to 12, uh, different long positions that I hold a, at least a small position in that were up 10% or more today, uh, on the 19th of, of March. So, uh, Twitter, I bought some Twitter this morning. I, I swing traded some Twitter calls this morning when it got down to under $21 a share. I, I actually, I think I caught the bottom at like 20 66 um and it was over 24 most of the latter part of the day or high 23s uh so twitter 
I'm a big believer in Twitter as a platform's potential. I feel like it's been mismanaged uh, due to due partially to Jack Dorsey being split between Square and Twitter. I actually have a Square long position uh, with some calls. I don't remember the time frame off the top of my head. It's either June 2020 or, or it might be 2021 or 2022. Uh, so a lot longer dated. Uh, so Square and Twitter, despite the fact that Jack Dorsey remains the CEO of both, uh, for a number of months there, I was I was pretty pretty down on Jack uh, due to his water carrying for Elon Musk. We'll see what happens uh, t- just today on the 19th of, of March. Uh, Twitter has instituted a new policy to help protect people against misinformation and bad information related to the coronavirus. And Elon Musk has been basically the poster child of violating those rules. So we'll see if uh, if those rules actually get enforced in in the case of Elon Musk. I have serious doubts that they will not be enforced. Uh, serious doubts that they will be enforced. I, I seriously doubt that they'll be enforced. So we'll see what happens with that. But at with the, with the share price declines, Square, Twitter got really cheap. Zscaler got super cheap. I, I wish I'd loaded up on some calls when it was down below 40 yesterday that's uh, a couple long calls long long ideas that i have uh, there's a number of other ones my i i was really concentrated with trying to keep my number of positions i was looking at to like under 15 but it's gotten to be 35 to 40 or 50 recently on the short side i still really like netflix they burn so much cash and their share prices held up surprisingly well uh, well not surprisingly, because of the the false, falsely believed thesis of, oh, they'll do fine through the coronavirus. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of meat on the Netflix bone, uh, particularly if if uh, we do get that bounce to that downtrend line that then it fails for further downside. That would be an excellent, excellent time to, to short Netflix, in my opinion, though this podcast is never investment advice, clearly. But uh Carvana, I think, very well could be bankrupt very, very quickly, maybe within the next month or so. My other, So Tesla and Netflix are my two biggest shorts right now. I don't really have any other of, of any appreciable size. I think Carvana's third. That's just a few ideas to throw out there. I think that's a, that's a helpful rundown, and I will segue and put the pontificate and talk my book. So I, I've had no position in Netflix in any time in the past couple of years, but I agree that it's probably one of the best short setups in a while. And it's just hilarious and still an example of how fictional the market is that is held up because, you know, everyone's staying in Netflix, Netflix and chilling during this, but you know, there is no incremental revenue to be derived. And if anything, there's additional cost because I have no idea if they rent out their movies on a, you know, just, unlimited basis or if they're paying you know some per view fee to people but either way there is i would assume essentially zero revenue upside and potentially some cost downside to people staying in and watching netflix so it's been very funny that it's held up and you know been a sort of contrarian virus play when in reality there's no no basis in that and i will segue into talking the my couple ideas, which once again are, you know, probably the opposite of things that anybody should do, but the same way you like Twitter. And I think we talked about this on Twitter. 
I like Pinterest for kind of the same reason in terms of its very cheap eyeballs. They're down from, I think, you know, 20, 25, $30 a share to as low as maybe as high as 35 even. Yeah. As low as 10, as low as 10. And I had some, I had some good buys earlier, earlier this week, but it's the same way where they're very unique at what they do. You know, Twitter is fin to it. Twitter is, you know, comedy. It's like nothing other in terms of the way that you interact with people, et cetera. There's value to that. But at the same time, uh, well, so I wouldn't say short Twitter, but I'm not long Twitter, but you know, I think the monetization aspects of Twitter, I'm sure it could be improved, but you know, I think the best opportunity Twitter has is probably charging people to sign up for a premium membership that, allows them to have additional functionality or, you know, not have advertisements or whatever. So Pinterest is kind of the same way where they're in their infancy in terms of monetization, in terms of, I think they do very little right now, but they have, if nothing, you know, they have, they have the easiest click through affiliate type of platform possible in terms of I'm pinning this engagement ring, I'm pinning this wedding dress, you know, it's from this vendor, let's click through and, you know, Pinterest gets a cut and the pinner gets a cut as well. And to my knowledge, they haven't really deployed that yet. Um, but it's the same way where they have a lot of eyeballs in a niche like Twitter that nobody else has and nobody else will ever have because it's a very unique thing and it's just underappreciated. So I, I wish I would have, I mean, it, it hasn't rallied that much off the lows. I think it closed at you know, 1250 or something today off of a low of 10 or something like that. So it's still down you know 50 plus percent and up 15 or 20 percent from the lows but uh but so i bought some pinterest i'm gonna hold for the long term my other two ideas that i'm gonna sell here but once again i'm not actually selling and they're probably terrible ideas so don't believe me one of them is nokia which i've been talking about for a while and that's a nationalistic play in terms of you know the global economy is sputtering right now, but eventually we're all going to need 5G to power our cell phones, to power you know business networks and you know, smart sensors everywhere and things like that. And Nokia is the best in my limited understanding, you know, non-Huawei play on who can power that economy. And they, through both their own lack of execution as well as this global drawdown, you know, they're down from five or six dollars a share to 250 or something like that. So, you know, I, I see them getting taken out by a U.S. private equity firm or, you know, a European consortium or something like that. It probably back at five dollars a share or something like that in the, in the not too distant future because we're going to need to pick up the pieces and build up the telecom economy and, you know, just really the infrastructure for our society going forward, no matter whether or not we're in a recession or not. So I think that's a, quite a safe play, especially at these levels. Um, but then again, you know, it's gone down 5% a day pretty much every day in this overall decline. So, uh, who knows what's safe anymore. And then my last one, which is probably the baggiest, uh, gamble of all is Sabre, which is S-A-B-R ticker, I believe, and S-A-B-R-E company name, I believe. And they're basically the back end booking system of all corporate travel and general travel throughout the entire world i think that they do a lot of air travel but i think they also specialize in hotels and things like that um but you know if, if you search google flights or if you search priceline basically the saber is what is behind that actually powering the results and yet you know, they get software to service platform fees but i think they got a lot of 
fees off of the actual booking. So they're going to certainly take a hit in the short term when nobody's booking any type of travel whatsoever. But you know, they were $20 stock, you know, six weeks ago, and they are a $4 stock today. And I don't think they have any immediate liquidity issues and they have suspended their dividend. I think they've actually uh, stopped pay raises and things like that, which perhaps is not a good sign of the sustainability of the company. But you know, I, I think that I tweeted today and talked about perhaps earlier with you or somebody else, but in my opinion, enterprise value to EBITDA is the most important metric if you're looking at distressed company and Saber made like a, a billion dollars a year in EBITDA during the sort of normal times. And their enterprise value right now is about $4 billion. And granted, they're not going to make a billion dollars EBITDA next year. You know, it might be 500 million, it might be nothing. But if they're sort of normalized, run rate EBITDA is a billion dollars a year, you know, any strategic or advantageous private equity firm would pick them up at four times normalized EBITDA, even if you got to wait a couple of years to make that payoff. So, so that's my riskiest play. And, you know, Airlines have been down 70%, they might go down another 50%. You know, Sabre's been down 70%, they might go down another 50% as well. So I, I'm sort of at a third of a third of a position right now. But if we're talking about potential balance back plays for the normalization of the economy, that that's my hottest long idea in terms of something that has been beaten down, but you know, over the long term will be a sustainable business. Sounds good. I'm I'm gonna have to pull up their chart before I even piece together the the pieces of the audio for this podcast well elmer thank you for joining this has been episode number 60 of the tesla q podcast actually episode 62 after this conversation lasting a lot longer than expected and recording another episode in the interim period we're going to call this the end of the episode and you can hang on afterwards elmer thanks for having me thanks for listening bye-bye